0: last week. Uh, Last week, Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ, and this was an absolute milestone moment on his journey, but he's still not seeing clearly Uh, because in in their minds, that title, the Christ, Israel's long-promised Savior, the one who'd been foretold throughout the Old Testament, that title was loaded with baggage, The expectation is that when the Christ came, he was going to lead God's people to a military victory. He was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And for lack of a better word or term, he was going to make Israel great again, right? He was going to reestablish them to that place of world dominance. But the very next thing Jesus does after Peter's good confession is he sticks a pin in that expectation and blows it up. He blows up their assumption with this audacious statement that we looked at last week. Chapter 8, verse 31, he explains to them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He'll be rejected by the religious leaders, killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, because we are like two thousand years removed from this reality, from this first-century setting, and because most of us at least have some knowledge of the storyline of the Gospels and we know how the story ends, it's really hard for us to grasp just how incomprehensible that must have sounded uh, to them when they who are hearing it for the first time. So, so imagine this: imagine quitting your job to volunteer for someone who shows incredible potential. You meet someone, you've never met anyone like them before, you know this guy is going places, so you just leave everything behind, and you follow him, and, and he leads you all over the country, and everything just seems to be clicking into place. And, and it actually seems like things are going to line up for him to turn into the next viable nationwide presidential candidate. Everything looks so good, but then he has to sit down, And he says, all right, guys, listen up. Here's the game plan. I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to get abused by the political leaders. I'm going to get arrested by the CIA. I'm going to be put in jail, put on trial, made a mockery of, found guilty. And then I'll be handed a death sentence. And I'm going to be executed in an electric chair. And after that, three days later, I'll come back to life. That's incomprehensible. And as, as, as absurd as that sounds to us, it was even more so to them. Peter hears those words come out of Jesus' mouth, and he shifts into intervention mode. It says he took Jesus aside, and he started rebuking him. But Jesus doesn't back down. In, instead, he doubles down. He doesn't open up the floor and say, hey, guys, let's have some conversation. I would love to hear your feedback on my plan. No, he doesn't. He clarifies that if their intention, if your intention, my intention, if our intention is to follow him, it's gonna mean walking down that same path with him. The journey with Jesus gets traveled along a road called self-denial and surrender. The road's not called easy street. So following him It's not the path of least resistance, but Jesus does promise that it is the best possible and the only viable option for how to go about living life. So that's where things are at. The disciples have been trying to absorb the shock of what Jesus has just told them, this incomprehensible statement. He's, they've been sitting and stewing on this for six days when our passage this morning opens up. So they've had six days to, to kind of digest everything they've heard. And in those six days, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that they've been asking themselves a lot of questions. Like, what in the world are we doing? Like, I don't know what's gotten into this Jesus guy. We've been following him, but he is off the rails right now. This following Jesus thing, it's not playing out the way that we expected, and this is definitely not what I signed up for. See, the disciples were at a crossroads. I don't know if you've ever been at a crossroads. I think we all have at one time or another, Um, but it's not all that often when Jesus' agenda lines up with our expectations. Have you noticed that? If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you probably have come to that conclusion. And it's so easy for us to project our expectations on him. And so we assume things like, okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll do life your way. And in return, my problems are going to go away. And life is going to get so much easier. And I'll be successful. And people will pay attention to me. And I'll get the stuff that I want. And the struggles are going to stop. And things are going to start falling into place. That is my plan for Jesus' life. But then eventually the moment arrives when we figure out that Jesus' agenda and our expectations are irreconcilably different. They cannot coexist. His plans are always better and deeper and richer and fuller, but they're just a whole lot different from the things that we usually have in mind. And what needs to happen is those expectations that we bring to the table, they've got to drop. So his agenda and his expectations can move forward. And, and that's, that's what the disciples are wrestling with right now. They're, they're confused. They're conflicted. They're disillusioned. And maybe they're not even sure if they want to keep on following Jesus. So maybe you're at a crossroads like that this morning. If you can relate. And I do believe that at some point in life, at one time or another, all of us can relate. So so let's listen uh, to what happens next? I'm going to read from Mark chapter nine, and uh, starting uh, in verse one, it says, "This he said to them: Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power." So let me just stop there for just one second because this is sort of the bridge between last week's passage and this week's passage. And uh, if you were here last week, there was this whole metaphor about blind and sight. uh, Being able to see and not being able to see. And Jesus makes this point, you guys don't have any spiritual eyes. And he closes that with this this expectation that some of you are going to see. Not all of you, but some of you are going to see something that's going to blow your minds. And a lot of people have a lot of questions about this verse. And I think it's fulfilled in what we're going to read next, where not all of them, but three of them see something Very strong and very powerful. So here's what it says. Um, It says, after six days, Jesus took took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him. Okay, so in this scene, uh, God flips on the high beams. He, he addresses the struggle that the disciples are working through, not with explanation, but with revelation. Because at the close of this scene, after everything has been done, they're still filled with questions. And, and Jesus' agenda, it's still pretty confusing to them. And what he wants from them still doesn't make a whole lot more sense than it did at the beginning of this passage. Uh, the difference, the only difference is that All that uncertainty, all that doubt, all that confusion has been eclipsed by this overwhelming glimpse of the glorified Jesus. That's that's it. The headlights are on him and they're on full. They go from low beam to high beam. And they see Jesus for who he is and that was enough for them. And for us today, it's enough as well to see him as he is. Now, this is not the only high beam moment in, in scripture. This is something that uh, you do see from time to time throughout the Bible. The theological term is what's called a theophany or, or a, a God sighting. And so, one example is in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. He, he was working through his own season of disillusionment after King Uzziah had died. Now, a prophet's job in, there, in that day was to, was to speak directly into the king's life. And most of the kings weren't very receptive to that. Uh, They didn't care what the prophets had to say. But Uzziah, for a while, seemed to be the exception. Things were going well for a long time, but then pride set in, and Uzziah crashed and burned, and another king bites the dust. That's kind of the story of the kings of the Old Testament. And in the wake of all the confusion, it says in chapter 6, verse 3 of Isaiah, Isaiah writes this, in the year that King Uzziah died, in other words, at this moment when things were a total mess, when nothing seemed to make any sense, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And he goes on and he describes that overwhelming sight in vivid detail. See, Isaiah didn't get explanation, he got revelation God flipped on the high beams, and he saw the Lord for who he was, and that was enough. The difference here is that this select group of disciples, they arrive at the the top of the mountain, and it's Jesus that they see high and lifted up. The Father showcases the Son, and they see this Jesus that they've been following is himself the Lord. He's exalted, he's glorified, and he's in a league all his own. So the word that is used here it says that Jesus became transfigured before them. Uh, this scene is known as the Transfiguration. It's a big term. Uh, the Greek word is metamorpho, and it's the same word where we get the word metamorphosis from, right? the The word we use to describe that transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly, and the core identity is the same, but the form is completely different. And this this scene. It's not showcasing a new side to Jesus that hadn't existed previously. It's not like, look, he's achieved to a new level and look who he's become. No, this is is the same Jesus that's always been, the eternal, glorious Jesus. The difference is that what had been up to this time hidden beneath his humanity is for this moment exposed so they can see him in all of his glory. And in that moment they find out despite everything they thought they knew about this Jesus they've been following, there was a whole lot more that they had to learn. When the high beams flip on, we see that Jesus is more. He's more than just a cool guy that we can hang out with and who can do miracles and and tricks, right? He's, He's more than a man. He's more than a teacher. He's more than just a moral example. When we see him as he is, we see that Jesus is the Lord, that his very presence reflects and radiance as an absolute undiluted glory. He describes it as this blinding white light, brighter than any white that we've ever laid eyes on. It just emanates from him. And onto this already overwhelming scene, uh, company shows up. Two spiritual giants, Elijah and Moses. And they start having a conversation with Jesus. And we don't know what the topic of conversation was. I would love to have been a fly on the wall to just have listened to that. But, uh, but that's not the point. The point is that these two Hall of Fame heroes, they serve as a reference point and do nothing more than just emphasize the exclusivity of Jesus Christ that he is in a league and in a category all his own. And so the disciples are there. And remember, they thought they were just going on a hike, right? And they got so much more than they ever expected. They're overwhelmed. They're in full freak out mode at what their eyes are seeing. And, you know, we all react differently to overwhelming situations, right? Um, When Peter freaks, he speaks. Anybody like that? right? When things get like really crazy, you just start talking. Um, He just opens up his mouth, and whatever words are in there are going to just start spilling out. It doesn't matter if it makes any sense. It doesn't matter if it's the right thing to say. None of that matters. It's just something needs to be said, and that's what Peter does. He says, it is good that we are here. We can build uh, some shrines or some shelters for each of the three of you, and there's no response. It's just like this awkward silence, you know, like how socially awkward a moment was that? But Peter is, what he's trying to do, he's trying to honor Jesus. He's trying to put him on the same plane in the same category as these two spiritual giants. Yeah, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. This is the top tier. Jesus, you are on that top tier. No words, but, but this cloud appears. And then out of the cloud the voice of God speaks and says this, this is my beloved son, listen to him. There's there's both identity, right? This is who he is, my beloved son. And there's also instruction. This is how to respond. This is what to do. Listen to what he's telling you. Okay, so the question then is, is who exactly is this voice of God referring to? Is, is it Moses? Is Moses the beloved son of God? Is Elijah the one that we ought to listen to? It says when they look, both Elijah and Moses are gone and Jesus alone is left. The high beams, they shine on him alone, Jesus. He's the one and the only beloved son of God in an exclusive way. In a way that could not be said of Moses, that could not be said of Elijah, that could not be said of you or of me or of any other person on this planet. Jesus, and and to make the point clear, uh, it's not just the religious, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders who who don't apply those words to themselves. Those words also don't apply to any of the world religious leaders doesn't apply to Mohammed, doesn't apply to Buddha, doesn't apply to Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or any of the other people this world adores and and obsesses over. Jesus is the incomparable Christ and he is in a league all his own. He alone is the beloved son of God. He is the one that God calls them and calls you and calls me to look at and to listen to listen to him not because it all makes sense not because everything's been fully explained to your satisfaction and you have stamped his agenda with your seal of approval that's not what this is about listen to him because of who he is he is unlike any other he is the beloved son of god And it's not that what he calls us to is ever like illogical or nonsensical. That's not the case. It's that his ways are not our ways. Is that he is God and that means that he knows more than we do. We're finite, he's infinite. And there is this plan that's unfolding that, that, that he wants us to walk on, that he wants to play out in our lives. And as we look back on it, we can look back and see the wisdom and the goodness of His ways, but in the moment, listening and following, it's a matter of faith. It's a, it's an act of trust. And so, here's a here's a simple prayer to pray: Lord, hit me with the high beams. Right there's so many ways that we can see a diminished Jesus, that we can see Him for less than who he really is. Jesus became one of us. He lived his life in the world just like us, but in a way that's so crucial to grasp. Jesus is nothing like us. And we've got to figure that out too. He's perfect. He's pure. He's glorious. He's beautiful. He's awesome. He's magnificent. He's even a little bit scary. He's unlike any other. And that's the Jesus the disciples met that day. And that's the Jesus we meet in this book through these pages of scripture. This is the Jesus who calls you and calls me into a life of radical discipleship. Follow him. He's the one who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. And he's the one the Holy Spirit is actively working to illuminate in our lives. The high beams are still on him because nothing matters more than seeing Jesus for who he is. So let me let me just sum it up in a slightly different way, just in case that high beam metaphor isn't working for you. Uh, one of the relationship principles that uh, Diane and I have learned um, throughout the years, or at least what she has learned about me, is that... If she wants me to get something, um, she can't drop hints about it. She has to drop bombs. All right? Anybody relate to that? Yes. I I am thick. I am dense. And the indirect approach, I know it ought to work. Right? I wish it did work. But nine times out of ten, I cannot catch a clue. It is just a byproduct of I don't know what. Um, if... I need it to be loud. I need it to be clear. And if you don't hit me over the head with it, then there's a really strong chance that I'm gonna miss out on it. That's what the disciples were like when it came to Jesus. The indirect approach wasn't doing the job. They've been, they've been walking with Jesus all this time and they're still scratching their heads. They still don't get it. And, and, and this, this moment, this, this scene is, is God dropping the bomb, right? This is God flipping on those high beams. Look at my son. It's him. Jesus, he is the one. It's him and no one else. Listen to him. Let him lead you and keep on following. So are you looking at a low beam Jesus or a high beam Jesus? The low beam Jesus is all you see is that diminished him is he might be someone you're like, yeah, you know, uh, I can appreciate him. He's kind of inspiring. The high-beam Jesus is more than appreciated. He's, he's adored. The high-beam Jesus isn't just someone to just consider. He's someone to obey, to listen to, no matter what. Even if he calls us to, to lay down our lives, to take up our crosses, to follow him to wherever he's going. And so when you're at that crossroads, when you're at that place in life where you don't know what to do, when nothing seems to make sense, look at him, see him for who he is, listen to what he says and let him keep on leading in your life. I can only speak for myself up to this point in my spiritual journey, but there has never been a time when I've looked back at following Jesus and said, you know what? I wish I hadn't done what Jesus told me to. I really regret those moments of obedience. Never. I do have a lot of regrets, but it's typically for those times when I failed to follow. Now, this, this mountaintop moment, this left a lasting impression on Peter's life. You know, he's, he's still got a ways to go. He's still this impetuous disciple. The struggles are far from over. We're gonna see a lot more of that. But, but later on at the end of his life, he writes this book called 2 Peter, it's a letter, and he mentions this moment. In 2 Peter 1, 16, he says this, "'For we did not follow cleverly devised myths "'when we made known to you the power "'and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. "'For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, "'and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, "'this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" We ourselves heard that voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Just just in case you get the idea that, yeah, this whole Jesus thing, this is a myth, this is a metaphor. They're not talking literally, this is all made up legends. No, that's not the case. The high beams of the Father are set on the Son. And so when you're at that crossroads, you may not get explanations but when you open up this book, you do get revelation. Jesus revealed for who he is. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his glorious face. See him for who he is. It was enough for them and it's enough for you and for me. Let's pray together.